0: Hello. Greetings. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you're doing well. We're very glad that you have an interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. About a decade ago, Russians observed Joseph Stalin's 126th birthday. And there were some Russians in the Caucasus mountain region who actually were pining for the days of Stalin. For Joseph Stalin, now the most conservative estimates of the number of Russians that were killed by his orders is about 20 million. Again, that's the conservative estimate. Apparently, they've forgotten about that. They remember instead that he was consistent. They remembered how he industrialized and modernized the nation and his leadership against the Germans. We could ask the question, how is it that people could so willingly forget such evil and would actually want to elect a known totalitarian tyrant? But recent events have proven that that question is unfortunately very easily answered. And the idea is nothing new. The Greek historian Thucydides, writing regarding the Peloponnesian War that took place in the late 5th century BC, said the following the mouth of Pericles, one of the leaders of Athens. Hatred and unpopularity at the moment have fallen to the lot of all who have aspired to rule others. But where odium must be incurred, true wisdom incurs it for the highest objects. Hatred also is short-lived, but that which makes the splendor of the present and the glory of the future remains forever unforgotten. This proved true about Pericles himself. It was his policy that brought all citizens in Athens and made the plague that came far worse. He would be remembered as one of the best Athenian generals because he had very wise plans that later generals did not follow to the demise of that city. And there's a lot of other examples we can think of. Thomas Jefferson is thought today fondly, but at the time many thought he was going to be the destruction of the Republic. Abraham Lincoln. We have enshrined him as one of our uh, best presidents, and yet he was justifiably concerned that he would not be reelected; that instead they would re- they would elect McClellan in his place. And there's a lot of times where the follies and foibles of political leaders can be forgotten by later later generations. Their positive attributes are memorialized and idolized, as people yearn for a different time and things that they don't think they have today. This is not just true in politics. In fact, in the scriptures, we find other examples of the same type of thinking, and we do well to consider them. In fact, the Israelites, when they are in the wilderness, seem to display the same attitude. Now, to understand this, we have to understand what took place and led them to the wilderness. It was prophesied to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that his descendants would sojourn in another land for 400 years and that was the time that the Israelites spent in Egypt and the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites forced them into hard labor forced them to make bricks and to build cities and as they continued to grow in population uh, stringent member uh, measures were imposed to suppress the population by killing the bo- babies uh, that, were bo- that were born who were male in Exodus chapter 1. Because of this, in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, the Israelites cried out to God on account of their harsh oppression and the slavery that they were experiencing. And this is important for our story to note that the Israelites themselves called out to God for relief from their slavery. This was something that they had prayed for. It was something, ostensibly, that they wanted. And it is soon after that that God begins to work salvation for the Israelites. Moses and Aaron are called to speak to Pharaoh. There is a ten plagues that are imposed upon the Egyptian in Exodus 7-12. through All of these plagues demonstrating that the gods of the Egyptians were not truly God, that Yahweh got glory over all of the land of Egypt, over Pharaoh, and over all of the pantheon of Egypt. With the final devastating plague, the death of the firstborn, save those of Israel over whom God passed. And a great display of power, though Yahweh parted the Sea of Reeds, and the Israelites passed through. But when Pharaoh and his chariots press hard, the sea is returned and they are drowned. And thus, Israel stands seeing their deliverance. We have the song of Moses and the people of Israel in chapter 15. I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father is God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh. Is his name. So they are praising Yahweh for what he has done. They look to him as their salvation and their strength. They call him their God, the God of their father. And now that they are in the wilderness, God is going to provide for them. He's going to provide for them water, he's going to provide the manna from heaven as food. In Exodus 17, when the Amalekites attack, uh, he provides victory over their foes. So God will prove faithful throughout this period. And in fact, God is having Israel experience this to be able to trust that he is in fact God, their God, and has shown them covenant loyalty. That any moment when Israel would doubt, they could go back in their mind and say, but he delivered us from the hand of Egypt. Egypt, not when it was weak, but when it was at its height, when it was at its greatness point of its power. And when it was unrivaled power of that time in the Bronze Age. And yet Yahweh got glory over Egypt and nourished and sustained his people Israel the entire way. So God wrought all these signs and wonders and provided continual reminders of his care. And it would be easy to think that the Israelites would be thankful for that. And yet we read in chapter 16 of the book of Exodus... They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's important to note the time frame here. Second, month, fifteenth day after they depart from the land of Egypt. That could be 45 days since they left Egypt. The Passover's on the 15th day of the first month. It would be a month after they left Egypt. Regardless, it hasn't taken them very long. Not long after they saw the deliverance from the plagues, not long after they saw the Sea of Reeds opened up and they walked through, they have a moment of difficulty, and what do they do? They grumble, they complain. But also notice that they start thinking about what they had in Egypt. Or at least what they imagined that they had in Egypt. Did they really have meat pots to the full and bread? Uh, A little bit. Whether to the full might be a bit of an exaggeration. We can't be totally sure. But this is what they focus on. They focus on what they had in Egypt. Did they remember the slavery? The hard bondage? The fact that their children were in danger of being taken or killed. No, they remembered food. Because they were not in danger of oppression at that moment. But they felt like they were in danger of starving. And so they were thinking that they would prefer slavery over a bit of hunger. God provided them water previously. He provided them food beginning in chapter 16. That's when the manna begins to fall. But then in chapter 17 of Exodus... Yet again the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, again, he just given them water stages back, but now there's no water again. And so now the question is, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us with thirst? So now it's because of thirst that there is a desire to heed uh, the time in, back in Egypt and to think that things are better then. This grumbling does not stop. It continues yet again. And in Numbers chapter 11, we read, And the people complained in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of Yahweh burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So manna had been given without fail. And as far as we can tell, the, the Israelites were able to continue to eat it. But it wasn't enough. Now they want meat. And when they want meat, what do they do? They think about all the food they said they had in Egypt. Fish from the river without cost, they say. Cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. Now all they have is manna. And so that's why they want to go back to Egypt. And then we have the climax of this grumbling and complaining. The ultimate end of this grumbling and complaining in Exodus, in Numbers, chapter 14. In Numbers 14. The Israelites have just heard about the report of the spies who had checked out the land of Canaan. The spies talked about how wonderful the land it was. Yes, it was a fertile land. Yes, it flowed with milk and honey. But there were people in it. Lots of people. And the, they looked like uh, the grasshoppers in the uh, sight of all of these tall giants that were in the land. Uh, Joshua and Caleb saw the same things and had great confidence that Yahweh could deliver the land to them. The rest of them saw that and were just convinced they were going to die. And so in Numbers chapter 14, it is written, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and all the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's just stop for just a second and think about the sheer stupidity of what the Israelites are imagining for themselves. Let's just stop and play this scenario out. Let's say that they did that very thing. Let's say that they found somebody who would lead them back to Egypt. What would have happened to them? Would they have just come back and knocked on the gate and said, We're sorry, we want to become your slaves again so we can eat and drink. When the Egyptian officials mouths could be finally shut. What would the Egyptians have done with them? Would not Pharaoh remember all the trials and travails that the Israelites had put them through? Would that really be worth all the forced labor? No, he'd have them killed. He would have them killed. And so, the Israelites are seemingly choosing death over death. And so it's a good example and illustration to show that at this point, the Israelites aren't really thinking, they're reacting. And what they ask for is exactly what they're about to get. Would that we had died in this wilderness. Well, in verse 20, Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. Instead, later on in verse 31, But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And so we have the conclusion of the matter. The Israelites kept looking back to Egypt. They would use any cause of suffering or any moment of difficulty. And any moment of difficulty, at any moment there might be a doubt, when they had a choice to trust or a choice to doubt, they doubted. And every time they doubted, where did they go? They at least mentally went back to Egypt. Okay, so that was an interesting story from many thousands of years ago in a different covenant. And yet, Paul wants to point this story out to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, It is written, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So what's Paul doing here? A lot of people have been confounded by what Paul's trying to do and and not quite seeing it. What Paul's doing is he's Christianizing the events that we've just described. I mean, by Christianizing, he's, he knows he's talking to a predominantly Gentile audience. And so he's describing what happened to Israel in a way that they can really see the parallels, really brings it home. Well, look at what happened. God put them under the cloud. They all went to the sea. They were baptized into Moses. Were they literally actually baptized into Moses? Well, they were surrounded by water on three sides, and so it seemed like it was a type of immersion, but uh, we don't see any suggestion that they were actually in any way baptized in any sense that we would understand the term. Uh, we see that they uh, drank from the spiritual drink, and that rock was Christ, and they ate the same spiritual food. Uh, this is hearkening back to Deuteronomy eight three that uh, God uh, gave you hunger but fed you with the manna, so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he's really trying to show the association. See, they're your fathers. Are they the fathers according to the flesh? No. Spiritual ancestors. The people of God before them. And he's doing that to point out, don't Do what they did. Don't follow in their evil. What's the evil that they did that we are to avoid? Well, he talks about the fact that they committed idolatry and sexual morality and things of that nature. And then verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's really two phases in our faith when it comes to a story like this when we look at israel in the wilderness we can point fingers and we can say look look at them look at how foolish they are look at how uh how they don't trust in god and, and make it about them but then there's a point we need to grow in our faith where we realize if i were there who would i have been with would i have sought for egypt probably so How were they tempted, and how can I avoid that temptation in my own life?" And we look at them over and over again in this story. They don't trust in God. They grumble at every opportunity. And why? Why didn't they trust it in? Well, they always were mentally going back to Egypt. Because in Egypt, they were in bondage, yes. They were slaves, yes. But there was food, water, and at least some type of protection against external enemies. Now when they were in the wilderness and things got rough, the Israelites felt their lives were in danger. The suffering, which they weren't experiencing in terms of slavery and in terms of oppression, that was all forgotten about. But they remembered the food. They remembered the drink. They remembered what they seemed to be lacking at the moment. And when they did that, they pined for Egypt. And because of this, they perished in the wilderness. So when Paul talks about it, he's trying to bring that story near and Christianizes that story. But there's also profit in kind of flipping that script and taking our story today and looking at it in terms of that story of the Israelites. So we're gonna use some uh, allegory or metaphor here and take that story and look at how it applies to us in a spiritual sense, because this story maps quite well into our lives where we look at Egypt, okay? So the Israelites were in Egypt. What's the Egypt, quote-unquote, that we experience? Well, this, this Egypt that we experience is is this world. In 1 John 2, and verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its lusts but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now the promised land is the resurrection. It's Canaan. It's Canaan is a resurrection when God is going to set all things right and we are going to be in the presence of God forever and all of his promises will be made fulfilled in 1 Peter 1, through 3-5 other places. So we have come out of the world, we are heading to the resurrection. Where are we right now? We are in the middle of our lives. We are in a wilderness of sorts we are as peter will say in first peter 1 1 and 2 elect exiles sojourning on the earth and so we have left the we have left egypt we're heading to canaan we've left the world we're heading to the resurrection but we're in the middle and then we're in the middle there are these dangers there's these difficulties there's these trials that we're going to have happen Yes, we have been transferred out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of his beloved son in Colossians 1.13. And we're sojourners on the earth awaiting the resurrection. So what are we going to do when we have difficulties? When we have that moment of doubt? That difficulty, something going on. Are we going to put our trust in God because of what he has done for us? Or are we going to look back to Egypt? Are we going to look back to the world? Well, if we look toward the resurrection in God, we can obtain eternal life. If we look back to Egypt, it's going to lead us to perish. So why would this happen? When the Israelites forgot about the oppression of slavery, we are easily tempted as well to forget about the oppression of the slavery we experienced, which in Romans 6 was the slavery to sin. Because sin is deceitful in Hebrews 3 and verse 13. And we're tempted to remember the fleeting pleasures, or to forget or minimize the problems that we had in the life of sin. We talk often about Matthew 7 and 14, that the way is difficult and the path narrow that leads to life, and few are those that find it. And we tend to be really focusing on numbers there. You know, broad is the way many are those who find it. Jesus is not nearly as much concerned about the numbers as he is about the nature of the path a difficult way that leads to life and salvation. It's an easy and broad way that leads to destruction. And so it's easy to want to go the way other people are going. We all act like we want to be countercultural, but it's a lot of work and it's very hard to be countercultural. It's easier to go with the flow. Sometimes it's just giving up and just inertia and just going along with things. It's less work. It's fewer obligations. You can easy, more easily get along with people. But it's at that time we need to remember that we were separated from God because of our sin. And as Paul will continue to talk in Romans chapter 6. Slave to sin in verse 16. that The wages of sin is death in verse 23. But in verse 21 he asks, But what fruit were you getting at that time from of the things of which you are now ashamed? The devil wants us to remember the positives of our previous life, the things that we thought were great. He doesn't want us to remember the things of which we were ashamed. It's interesting that Paul in Ephesians 2 and Titus 3 will talk to Christians and begin with, well, you, know, you were once in terribly in sin and God redeemed you. And we, we don't want to talk about that, right? There are a lot of parts of our lives that we're ashamed of, things that we've done that we'd rather not think about. But Paul wants us to think about those things, and it's for this very same reason that the reason that we don't want to think about those things is we want to believe they never happened, and we want to focus on the good and not the bad. This can lead us to a a, a nasty form of self-righteousness and sanctimony as well, but it also gives us the impression that our life in the past wasn't that bad. It minimizes our departure from Egypt, and it makes it easier to look back to Egypt, look back to the life in the world, and to get covetous for the things that we feel like we've missed or that we've lost as we've uh, now experienced life in the wilderness. But it's not just this uh, concept of of being ashamed that we need to to remember. Uh, Above all, we need to remember that God is faithful. In Romans 8 and verse 32, He who has not spared his own Son, but has given us given him for us all. Will he not all so with him give us, through him give us all things?" If you think about what Israel did with the Exodus, they had forgotten what he had done. Think if the Israelites had just stopped for a moment and reflected. God has rescued us from bondage. He just defeated the Egyptian gods, the Pharaoh, and the army. Is God really going to do all that? And when they're milled the middle oh, I forgot to feed them. No, that's silly. Again, the whole reason God has done this is to demonstrate his faithfulness, that he has not abandoned his people and that he is there for them. And so they're given an opportunity to trust in him but they don't. Now, if they had stopped and thought about the things that God had done, would it not have been easier for them to trust? And wouldn't it have been much harder to think we should go back to Egypt? Yes, let's go back to Egypt, that country that couldn't put up a fight when God sent all the plagues and when their army got drowned. That makes no sense to looking at it negatively and positively, looking at it in terms of, wow, look at what God has done. Is God now going to abandon us here? And this is important because the story is no less true in Christ. If God has given Jesus for us, is he then going to be like, Oh, I've done everything I can to save them, I, I, I've sent my son to die for their sins, but I forgot to take care of them for a little while. That's not going to happen. And whenever we have that moment of difficulty, and difficult moments are going to come, trials are going to come. If we stop for a second and think about all that God has done for us and look back and see how God has brought us to the point that we have reached now, wouldn't it be much easier to put our trust in Him that He will continue to bring us to Him in the resurrection? God is faithful in 2 Thessalonians three three. He will deliver us from the evil one. Do we believe that? Do we put our trust in that? Because God has proven Himself over and over again. That's why He sent His Son. God could have left us rolling in sin and condemned, but God has loved us. He has demonstrated his love over and over. Can we put our trust in that? Will we trust in his promises? We see what happened with the Israelites. They did not trust in God. They received the penalty there. And so the question comes to us. What are we going to do? Because as we know very well, what the Russians did with Stalin are really nothing new. There's a tendency for humans to forget all the evil, but remember the supposed good that many have done. No matter how evil they might have been, if the day comes when the things that they seem to do right uh, look better than the current situation, people are going to want to go back to those days. Then that's true spiritually, as we see in the Israelites. God delivered them from Egyptian bondage. That was a deliverance that they sought. But whenever things seemed to go poorly in the wilderness, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They even—they literally wanted to go back to Egypt at one point. That would have led to their death. And so what about us? If we recognize that we are God's people, we're going to be exiles. We're going to have to leave Egypt. We're not going to be at home in the world. And we know that the powers of the world are not going to be able to stand on the day of Jesus. But when we're out in the wilderness and we're tempted, are we going to go back to Egypt? It's the stupidest sounding thing ever. With the Israelites but do we realize that when we are seeking to follow God in righteousness that if we turn back and return to the world of sin it's just like the Israelites return to Egypt we're doing the same thing and it's just going to lead to our death or to our death because the world's not going to have any care and compassion for us and the wages of sin is death that's what we're going to receive and that is why we need to heed this example and not choose evil like they did Yes, when we're in the world, it's going to be challenging to keep fighting the good fight. All the forces in the spiritual places and all these forces of darkness are aligned against us. And they're very powerful. But he who is for us is greater than he who is in the world. We need to choose how we're going to respond. Are we going to be like the Israelites and pine for what we think are the positives of our former life? And are we going to forget the evil... And to be led into sin and be condemned. Or are we going to remember that we have been delivered? And that we are ashamed of that which we used to be and do. And even though the times will be difficult that we're going to put our trust in God and to press forward to obtain the inheritance that he has established for us in the resurrection. Let us not choose evil as the Israelites did. But let us choose to trust God in this wilderness that we can reach his promised land. We're again so thankful that you've joined us and we hope that you've been benefited by this. If there's any way that we can be of any service, maybe you need to talk about some spiritual things. Maybe you'd like to talk more about this lesson. Maybe you'd like to learn what it means to be a Christian. Um, you'd like to maybe explore, we have other uh, sermon outlines available and, and sermon MP3s. We have articles available. Uh, maybe you'd like to sign up for a Bible study or participate in one of our local Bible studies in the Los Angeles area. Uh, please, you can come find out more about us at venicechurchofchrist.org. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can contact me at my website, diverbovitae.com, that's www.deverbovitae.com, or you can look us up on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.